0: Throughout history, God has stepped in to provide ways for his people to draw close to him, to fulfill our calling, to be restored to our true identity. Through his love and grace, God rescues us. Last weekend, I had the opportunity to do something just absolutely amazing, a a once-in-a-lifetime experience. If you follow me on social media, you know what I'm about to talk about, so three of you know uh, (laughs) and have seen pictures. But last weekend, 22 guys from here in Minneapolis went down to Arizona, and we ran the Grand Canyon— And so we went down the South Rim, all the way across the canyon, up the North Rim. Twenty-two guys ran about 22 miles. In fact, several of your ushers today were with me last weekend. So make sure to congratulate them on making it out. Uh, I did have on my mind, as we ran the canyon last weekend, I'm preaching on rescue this weekend. (laughs) And I was just praying. I did not have a story to tell about rescue But to be honest, I was hoping I didn't have a story about rescue, right? That it wasn't me that needed rescue out of the canyon. Christians have used words like redemption, salvation, and rescue, deliverance, to talk about the thing that God does in our lives. But I think we can use those words so frequently and maybe even so flippantly that we forget what are we talking about when we say something like God rescues us? So this past few weeks, we've been looking at how does God act towards his people in the Old Testament, and what does that show us about how God acts towards us today in Jesus? So if you'll take your Bibles and turn to Leviticus, you know, that favorite book of everybody's Third book of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. Grab a Bible, turn there. I know you woke up this morning thinking, I really hope we are studying the book of Leviticus. Leviticus 16. I'm going to tell you how we got to this point in Scripture and in our sermon series. So we started looking at Genesis chapter 1, the very first chapter of the Bible, and how God creates us, that God has created each and every human. For a relationship with him, to know him, to live in light of the truth that we have been made by God the creator. And not only that, just a few chapters later in Genesis 12, God comes to a man named Abram, who we also call Abraham. And he says, Abram, I claim you. I choose you to be mine and I'm going to take your family and grow it and expand it and bless the whole world through it. And so God claims humans, us, to use for his purposes in the world. And then if you follow the story of Abraham's family, who God has claimed, generations later, they've grown massively, but they end up in slavery in Egypt under the Pharaohs. And so then we talked about how God frees us, how God steps into their story in a, in a book we call the Exodus. So Genesis, Exodus, and it's the story of how God sets his people free from slavery. So they are now a people marked by freedom. And then God desires to take them and create them in their own land. They often call it the promised land. So he leads them through a sea and then through a desert. And as they're going through the desert, he desires to teach them. So last week, we looked at how God teaches us that their whole family and generations of their family had only ever known how to live under Egyptian oppression and slavery. And so God had to teach them how to live together from scratch. So he gives them laws and rules and rituals and practices of how to live together, like the Ten Commandments, and even like the book of Leviticus, So the book of Leviticus is really the answer to a question. If God is holy, and we use this word all the time to describe God, we sing about it, we pray about it, God is holy. It means that God is separate. He is apart from us. He is other. He is not like us. We would be called unholy. We are not like God. So how does a holy God live with a holy, how does a holy God live with an unholy people? How do they coexist? And the book of Leviticus is what you might call a holiness code. It teaches the people how to live together with a holy God who desires a relationship with them. So then the question is, if God teaches them how to live rightly, but they keep messing up, they keep making mistakes, they don't follow the code, they don't follow the rules, what then? What happens then? Well then, They need rescue. And so we're going to look at Leviticus 16, starting in verse 7 of how God rescues his people. And you're not going to see it coming. Verse 7. Then he, he is Aaron. Aaron is the high priest of the nation of Israel. Aaron must take two male goats, two male goats, and present them to the Lord at the entrance of the tabernacle. So stop right there. The tabernacle, remember, I said they were moving through the sea and then through the desert. They haven't made it to the promised land. They haven't built a temple. So the tabernacle is like a big tent that travels with them and serves as a temple, as a place where God resides in their midst, and they can go and interact with God through the high priest. So the tabernacle is like a temple. Verse 8, he, Aaron, is to cast sacred lots, so like rolling dice, to determine which goat, which of the two goats, will be reserved as an offering to the Lord and which will carry the sins of the people to the wilderness of Azazel. Verse nine, Aaron will then present as a sin offering the first goat, chosen by Lot for the Lord. The second goat, the other goat, the scapegoat, chosen by Lot to be sent away, will be kept alive, standing before the Lord. When it is sent away to Azazel in the wilderness, the people will be purified and made right with the Lord. So let's stop right there. This is how God rescues his people. I'm going to make sense of it in a second. I'm going to try to make sense of it in a second. Uh, But first, we have to ask ourselves the question, why exactly did they need rescue? Why exactly did they need rescue in the first place? So last weekend, last Saturday afternoon, while we were in the Grand Canyon, if we had needed rescue, if somebody that was running the canyon with us had needed rescue, it wouldn't be because they just got lazy. You know, I I think I'm good here, guys. I'm gonna stay, send one of those donkeys down. I'll take a ride out. It's fine. It's not because of laziness. It wouldn't just be because they're having a bad day. You know, this isn't really working for me. I need rescue. We would only use the word rescue for one reason if their lives were in danger, if they were in danger of losing their life. So we use the word rescue when something is in danger. And the Israelites were in danger of losing the future that God had for them. So they needed rescue. God had given them rules, rituals, practices, ways to live together to become a certain kind of people. We understand rules. We have kids and students here in this room. Kids and students, your classrooms in school have rules. Right? You don't always like it. Thank you. You don't always like those rules. You don't always follow those rules, but they have rules. The same thing. Our, our workplaces have spoken and unspoken rules about how to get along, how to work together. Many of your homes, most of your homes, hopefully all of your homes, have unspoken and spoken rules about here's how Here's how we live together. Here's what it means to be family. We understand rules that are meant to help us live in relationships in a certain way. And so God gave them rules on how to live together and how to live with Him. But here's what we learn really, really quickly. They can't follow the rules. They don't like the rules. They disobey the rules. They break the rules because they're just like us. We don't love rules. We think we can do it better on our own sometimes. How many times have you gotten yourself in at least a little bit of trouble because you decided, I've got this. I don't need any help. I don't need to follow the rules. I know how to do this. I don't need the instructions. I don't need the directions. I've got this. At least once a week, I pull up at my house. I get out of the car And I've got a bunch of stuff to take in. Now, a smart person would think, I need multiple trips to get that stuff in the house. But not me. I put it all in my hands. My jacket and my backpack, my coffee mug, my phone, my keys, a box that I'm bringing home from Amazon from the office. And I'm carrying it up to the front door. And I take the key. And what happens? I try to use the key in the door and everything just falls. Coffee spills everywhere, phone cracks on the ground. And I never, ever, ever think, why did you have all that in your hands? I always think the worst luck happens to me. (laughs) Because even in the face of my failure, I still believe that I'm capable of doing it by myself. The Bible has a word for this. It's a churchy word that sometimes makes us bristle, but it's called sin. It just means that we prefer to do it on our own, to our own detriment, our own demise. It means that you were made to walk with God and to trust in him all the days of your life. But because you'd rather do it alone, you're in danger of walking away from the future and the life that he has for you. So they needed rescue. And how does God rescue them? Exactly how you'd expect, with two goats. (laughs) Two goats. So how, I'm going to help you understand how two goats meant rescue. So raise your hand if you have a goat in your house right now. (laughs) A living goat? Raise your hand if you have a dead goat in your house right now. (laughs) Nobody? Okay, goats aren't everywhere in our culture. Like some of you might have grown up on a farm and there were goats, but we don't have goats goats in our yards and in our houses here in southwest Minneapolis. But that wasn't true for them. Goats were a vital and everyday part of life. Goats were everywhere. So we think, why a goat? And they would think, oh, a goat. It would be like if God came to us and said, "I'm going to teach you something. I need two cell phones." They're everywhere right? And that we value them. So two goats. God uses two goats because they needed an extreme reminder that their lives were defined by something extreme. The first goat we'll call the sacrifice. It says Aaron will then present as a sin offering the goat chosen by Lot for the Lord. So the sin offering was a sacrifice. And we have a very easy modern example of that. Just a few moments ago, we passed plates across the pews for you to put in an offering, a sacrifice to go towards the body here at CPC. Well, they didn't have a monetary society, and so they regularly brought portions of their stuff to the priest to sacrifice before God. It's the same concept, and this included livestock and meat. So they would bring a portion of their stuff, including their meat. So the priest, the pastor, was also like a butcher. I'll be honest, I'm so glad that's not true anymore. My wife will tell you I don't love cutting raw chicken at home. So glad we're not butchering meat. So I'm going to talk about this. It's going to be weird. Hang in there with me. The priest would take the goat and would butcher it, would cut it up and would drain all of the blood. Now I know it's weird, we don't talk about blood a lot as a society, it makes us squeamish. It wasn't weird for them, they talked about it all the time. But they would drain the blood, and then they would go on, they would cook the meat, they would eat it, they would share it, the meat went to good use. But then the high priest, Aaron, would take the blood, and he'd walk around the temple, and, or the tabernacle, and he would spread the blood, sprinkle it on everything. He would sprinkle the blood which again sounds really, really gross, but here's why they did it. It's very important that you understand one thing. Their culture believed one thing about blood. Blood carried life. Blood carried life. And so they didn't bring just any goat for this. They brought what they called an unblemished goat. It was a perfect goat, a goat with no weird marks. It was the best goat they had the most valuable goat, the most important goat, they would bring that goat. It was considered a clean goat. And because they believed that blood carried life, they believed what was happening was an exchange. The clean blood of a clean goat for the dead blood of a sinful human. There was a blood exchange going on. So God knew, he knew because he knows us, that they cannot keep the rules. So what he did was he instituted a blood swap with an unblemished goat. Now it's also important that you understand God did not need the blood. God didn't need the blood. They needed the blood. They needed the blood. They needed an extreme demonstration, an extreme reminder that God had an extreme love for for them, that his grace for them was over the top, outrageously extreme, and so they needed a stark reminder. The second goat, goat number two, we'll call the scapegoat. Verse 10 says, the other goat, the scapegoat, chosen by Lot to be sent away, will be kept alive, standing before the Lord. So there's the sacrificed goat, and then there's the living goat. And the priest would take his hands, and he would put it right on the living goat, and it would represent, he's taking all the sins of the people and putting them right on that goat. And they would have this ceremony and the goat would be led out into the wilderness and the people would be talking trash to the goat. You get out of here, you goat. Just talking trash to the goat. That's <laughs> so what they did. They sent the goat out and the goat takes the sins of the people far away from the people. It was an extreme reminder that sin has no place With God's people, that it needs to be far from us. We cannot let it linger nearby because we easily forget how painful and disruptive sin can be in our lives. We easily forget we are a forgetful people. So last Saturday, we get finished running the Grand Canyon and we take a four hour van ride back around, which was painful and agonizing in and of itself, and we get back to the South Rim where we're staying. We order 22 pizzas for 22 guys, (laughs) and we're sitting around just having a good time, enjoying the fruits of the day. And it had been hours, and I thought, I'm feeling good. So I told the guys, I said, you know what? I feel great. I could, I could do that again. I could get up tomorrow and do that. And one of the guys sitting there goes, Oh, really? You felt great? So I'm gonna show you a picture he showed me that I have not put on social media, which is. (laughs) It's about a mile from the top, by the way. Complete agony and suffering. We are forgetful creatures. We move on from the pain and the suffering and we completely forget it. We need reminders. And God's people needed an extreme visual that a holy God had moved towards an unholy people. God desired for it to be baked into their life together. So he gave them this ritual as an annual day on their calendar. The Jews call it Yom Kippur or the Day of Atonement and they did it every single year as a reminder that God had done something for them and they could never forget it. And so they did it year after year after year for hundreds of years until God did something even more extreme. There's a book in the New Testament called Hebrews. And the writer of Hebrews is a Jewish person who is reflecting back on the death and resurrection of Jesus in light of this passage we read here today in Leviticus 16. He's reflecting back on the day of atonement in light of what Jesus had done in his death and resurrection. And here's what he said. It's a little lengthy, but hang in there. It said the old system under the law of Moses, so that's Leviticus, that's what we've been reading, the old system, was only a shadow, a dim preview of the things to come, not the good things themselves. The sacrifices under that system were repeated again and again, year after year, but they were never able to, to provide perfect cleansing for those who came to worship. If they could have provided perfect cleansing, the sacrifices would have stopped. For the worshipers would have been purified once for all time, and their feelings of guilt would have disappeared. But instead, those sacrifices actually reminded them of their sins year after year. For it is not possible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. So we'll stop there. What he's saying is that this sacrificial system with the blood in the Old Testament, it wasn't for the sake of God. It was for the sake of the people. It was a reminder That they needed God and that God was the only one capable of rescuing them. That they need God and they could not forget. And so the Jewish people practiced this year after year after year because what the writer of Hebrews is saying is it didn't stick. Because it couldn't stick. Because the blood of bulls and goats couldn't actually make them clean. But something more extreme has happened. That in his death, Jesus' blood provides for us in a way that goats and bulls never could because it wasn't the the blood of an animal. It was the blood of a sinless, spotless, perfect human who was God in the flesh. The blood every single year reminded them that God was rescuing them. But then Jesus steps in and rescues them once and for all, rescues us. Once and for all, we don't have to keep repeating it. I was recently reading an article about people who had changed habits and behaviors in their lives. And in particular, there was a story about people that were trying to quit smoking. And what they found was when people wanted to quit smoking and they were offered a cigarette, they would say, No thanks, I'm trying to quit. And when they said that, they were more likely to actually give in and accept the cigarette. But if instead they said, no thanks, I'm not a smoker, then they were more likely to refuse the cigarette. Nothing different except for the way they talked about themselves. Isn't that fascinating? You see, how do we view ourselves? Do we view ourselves as Christ has rescued us once and for all. We are the rescued? Or do we view ourselves as those who need rescue over and over and over and over and over again? Because it should change the way we live. We are the rescued. Live like you have been rescued. We need reminders in our lives, just like they needed reminders but not reminders that we need rescue, reminders that we have been rescued. So in just a little bit, we're gonna come and gather around the table and take communion, take bread and juice to taste and see that God is good to us that his rescue is real. Where do you need to remind yourself? How would you build into your life regular reminders The things that you interact with in the world on a daily basis don't remind you that you've been rescued by Jesus. Sometimes what we want to leave you with is, here are three things to go out and do. And that's fine. We need that. Sometimes what we want to leave you with is, how can you make sure that you don't forget you have been rescued and set free by the blood of Jesus? And that should transform the way you live in the world. Tell yourself all the time, I am rescued. Let's pray. Holy and loving God, we come before you, thank you for, thanking you for Jesus, for the way his blood does for us what the blood of lambs and bulls never could, that it sets us free from the sin in our life, that it rescues us from the danger of a future without you. I pray that we would be reminded of your goodness, reminded of your love, and that as we think about those who have passed in the past year, that we would be reminded of your faithfulness in our lives. We love you and praise you in the name of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. Amen.